This is Lives on the Lines, exploring East Anglia via its railway branch lines. I'm Catherine Kerr, and in this series I'm travelling on Greater Anglia's brand new trains to discover the stories, histories and activities of East Anglia. The Bitten Line Community Rail Partnership works with people, local organisations and Greater Anglia to keep rail at the heart of life and to make sure visitors like you and me get a warm welcome. In this episode, we take a journey along the Bittern Line, beginning in Norwich and wending our way through the broads towards the coast at Cromer and Sheringham. We'll stop off to find out about the grand tradition of boating and leisure, hear about the artefacts to be found in the deep history coast, then end our journey in the seaside town of Sheringham. Today, we're beginning our journey in Norfolk's unofficial capital. I'm here in Norwich to find out how this historic cathedral city has endured centuries of change, from its early days as an Anglo-Saxon settlement to its conquest and development in Norman times, right through to the vibrant place it is today. Norwich is packed with exciting shops and businesses, two universities, picturesque streets, restaurants, bars and sights to see. You can board a sightseeing bus right outside the station and take an audio tour around the city, hopping on and off all day if you like. At the heart of the city is the largest outdoor market in Britain. Alongside this historic tradition lies the Forum. It's here that we'll meet John Humphreys, a former language teacher turned tour guide to the city. I'm very excited. I've just made my way from the station up here and I've sort of, I thought I knew where North was a minute ago, but I'm kind of lost because I've gone through all these wiggly piggly streets and there's cobbled streets, there's new buildings, there's old buildings and and I've appeared here at at quite a high point on the town in front of this incredible glass building. It is easy to get disorientated. We're in front of 21st century Norwich. Yep. The Forum, as it's colloquially called, a millennium project, 65 million pounds. It houses the library, restaurants, tourist office, a range of facilities. It's absolutely stunning. And in front of us, we've got this interesting juxtaposition of a medieval church. But there is another high point as we go through that we'll see, Mm -hmm. and that is the the castle, which overlooks the market. And the Normans, when they conquered, I mean, they established their rule throughout the country, and built a series of castles. In the case of Norwich, they built the largest castle in East Anglia because, I imagine, they believed that if any area was likely to rebel, it could be Norwich. Why did they think Norwich would rebel? Because Harold, as we all know, died at the Battle of Hastings, along with his brother, Gerth, Mm -hmm. who was the Earl of East Anglia. Oh, I see. So there's a link, and I think they thought, possibly keep them keep them under wraps build a massive castle and the castle was in fact a royal palace as well as a a fortress and we have to remind people that it it was nothing to do with protecting the people of Norwich it was to protect the people inside (laughs) who were French predominantly who established a market and where they were trading they needed a church this is the site of the church Well, so we've come out onto the marketplace, the modern marketplace now. The uh, new one that only dates to what, did you say, 1050s? Well, yeah, 1070s. If we get a a viewpoint. It's so pretty. It It is lovely. Sort of striped in every different colour rooftops. I think at different times there's been questions as to whether the market could survive Mm -hmm. 
quite a it's quite a, a foodie place. I can smell lots of yummy smells coming off. But there lots now. of lots of other things. But yeah, you can almost eat around the world there. <laughs> and then behind us, towering over the market, we can see the castle. So I've done some walks with groups who are visually impaired, and it's lovely to come through here because you can just say, "Okay, just smell." Yeah. Just smell and listen. We'll go down the next, the next route down. It's a very sensory experience, actually. Yeah. We're going past local delicacy, mushy peas mm. with mint sauce. <laughs> Gonna have to stop here on the way back. <laughs> We've emerged. We've emerged, and we'll get move from behind us a bit of Art Deco to a lovely bit of Art Nouveau. It's called the Royal Arcade. Oh, this the is Royal so elegant. We've got tiled, arched tiles, very bright. And Greens the tile, and blues. The, yeah, and peacocks, and it's designed. Royal Dalton, these are original. Are they? By Neatby. We've crossed what was once the ditch, and we are now just outside the castle keep. As we look across, we can see the tower of a medieval church, and then beyond it, for some people in Norwich, their new religion and that is Norwich City Football Club <laughs> to our left we have the spire of oh. the cathedral it astonishes me that when the Normans started building the the stone castle and what's now become the cathedral they used stone from Normandy it was shipped in Wow so we've emerged onto Elm Hill, a beautiful cobble street. Looks like something from a film set, doesn't it? And we're halfway down, and to our right we can see the thatched roof of the Britain's Arm, the only building that predates 1507 on this street. Fire took, took out the other buildings. The wind changed direction, so that old building was saved. Just in the but nick of time. Before 1507, the law was passed that there should be no thatched roofs within the city walls. So Norwich was a bit ahead of London on figuring that one out. <laughs> Well, yeah, you've got more Tudor in a street here than you find. We've stepped into the cathedral grounds. We will look in here. You could spend two hours in the cathedral and the cloisters. It's got the most amazing collection of medieval bosses in the ceiling. It is truly wonderful. To the left, two modern statues. On the left is Julian of Norwich, the woman who was an anchorite. She lived in a little cell attached to a church. She wrote the first book by a woman in English. And to the right, St. Benedict. When this was built by the Normans, it was a Benedictine monastery. All I can say is that standing in, on the steps uh, into the cathedral, staring down the nave, is quite breathtaking. From the ceiling to the floor, these arches and, and stone columns and the organ proudly playing there in pride of place it's it leaves you quite speechless it does and i and and that's that's where ordinarily one would finish here and leave people at leisure to enjoy some time what we'll do we'll see if we can cut through to the cloister then get down to the river and head you down to the station i can't believe how much we've seen we're still only at the start of this line as we leave the station, the compact metropolis of Norwich quickly slips away and gives over to tree-lined cuttings, farmland and broads. In the city, it's easy to forget that this is all just minutes away. 
The Bitten Line is considered one of the most scenic railways in Britain. From Norwich, it stretches through the broads and the beauty of North Norfolk to end at the seaside resorts of Cromer and Sheringham, where we'll be stopping off later. Next, we're going to be getting off at Hofton and Wroxham, a station that serves two villages split by the River Bure. One of the first things you notice when you arrive here is that this station connects with another railway line. The Heritage Bure Valley Railway carries steam vans for nine miles to the market town of Aylsham. It may only be 10am, but the office at Broad's Tours is very much awake with customers and inquiries. Just over the pretty bridge in Wroxham is a key bustling with bright white boats, some small, some not so small. For a little town, there certainly are a lot of people here. I'm keen to find out where they're all off to today. So let's meet Ruth Knight, the director of Norfolk Broads Direct. We are sitting on Bell of the Broads, one of the passenger boats at Broads Tours. Ruth, lovely to meet you. Hello. How has your morning been? It's been really busy, actually. It's a nice September morning, so we've got lots of customers looking to get out on the river, which has been lovely. I've got to say, I was really surprised coming in over this, this very small centre here. And this is kind of a gateway to the Broads for a lot of people, isn't it? It's just the centre of boating, really. It's where a lot of things started with boating holidays. And Wroxham is known as the capital of the Broads. There are a lot of uh, boatyards in Wroxham and they will hire a wide variety of boats. So you'll have people going out for the day. People might stay on a boat for a holiday and they could have a short break or a week. And that could be two people going up to possibly 10 people. And we're about to watch one of the passenger boats uh, go out next to us. How many, how many passenger boats do you have here? We have four that we operate and they're all double deckers as well, which is quite nice. So you get a really good view. So why do people come down here and, and use the water with you? To escape on the water, it's like such a magical experience. It doesn't matter if you go out on a trip for an hour and a half, you go out for a day driving yourself, or even have a holiday where you stay overnight. It's a pure escape in the outdoors, and we have a lovely landscape. You can't really walk beside the river. It's not like a canal with a towpath. So you need to be on a boat to experience the broads properly. An hour and a half trip from Wroxham, you will go through the village and you'll see lots of interesting houses and gardens, way of life by the water. You'll experience Wroxham Broad and Salhouse Broad and a little bit of the natural river before coming back. So we're on the Bell of the Broads now, which is one of your passenger boats. How many people would fit on here on a nice sunny day? On a nice sunny day on a normal year, you'd be looking at 100 people. 100 people? Yes. Oh, fun. The boat was originally built for Broads Tours, and it was so that we could take two coaches. And how long have you been living here and running your business? Well, I've been brought up on the Broads, and I really love the waterways. So it hasn't been too difficult to sort of sell holidays or work in the industry. But I did used to work here when I was 15, so it's a little bit like coming home. That's amazing. So as a 15-year-old, you worked here and then you came back and ran the business. Yes, I had summer jobs here as well, which is really nice. So it's, um, I used to work selling tickets at the window for the river trips and day boats. And now I've, it's like coming back home again. So you've got a real love for the broads. Can you tell me what it is that is so special about this place to people? visitors and locals? I think it's just the fact that you can escape on the water. Very often people are so busy on their everyday lives, rushing around, 
By being on the boat, the speed limit on the rivers is four or five miles an hour. You are forced to slow down. <laughs> Literally, yeah. So I've just got my sea legs today. As someone inexperienced in boating, can anyone just come along and enjoy the broads or do you have to have a bit of experience? No, you don't need any experience. We've introduced video guides for all of our boats. Oh, great. It would show you things like how to moor up, how to tie a rope, and you'd also have some tips on the rules of the river. So you actually drive on the right while you're on the river. Very continental. That's right, but we don't have any roundabouts or anything complicated. That's very reassuring. The Broads is in the National Parks family. But what's really struck me about travelling around here is that um, industry and life seem to go very much hand in hand with the water. So the wildlife is sort of integrated with human life and activity around here too. That's correct. Uh, there is a very good balance. Everybody that works within the Broads environment know they have to protect it for future generations. There's lots of recycling points. Uh, people are conscious of not leaving any rubbish. So it's like kind of like a harmony. That's right. At a very slow pace. Definitely. <laughs> Things don't happen too fast in Norfolk. We d we're not in the rat race. People just enjoy the way of life here. Ruth's tours run from Easter until the end of October, but she did tell me they put on special trips throughout the year. So if it's a bit of festive wildlife you're after, then do look them up. If you're visiting Hofton, you'll probably be puzzled when you see the name Roy's everywhere. I was. Who's Roy? There's a Roy's Toys, a Roy's Department Store, a Roy's Garden, Roy's DIY Shop, all bunched together in the centre. The brand was founded by the two Roy brothers in 1895, and they expanded to Wroxham in 1899. Roy's claims to be the world's largest village store. On our way towards the coast, we're passing through Worcester and North Walsham, a traditional market town. Weaving made the area wealthy in Anglo-Saxon times, and there are plenty of historic buildings, including Paston College. It was here that naval hero and proud Norfolk man Vice Admiral Horatio Nelson went to school. If you want to learn more, he was born north of here in Burnham Thorpe, where the local pub was renamed the Lord Nelson in his honour. In Worcester, the beautiful St Mary's Church stands as a testament to the wealth the wool industry brought to the area. This large church is also said to be haunted by a white lady ghost who has powers to heal or harm, depending on which story you listen to. But if you're spending a little time in North Walsham, you might want to extend your trip to take in Bacton Woods. There are marked trails here so you can walk or mountain bike through ancient woodland. Continuing our journey, we're getting closer to what's known as the Deep History Coast. Cromer is famous for its crab, but have you heard of the West Runton Mammoth? At this stop, you can take a short walk to the beach, checking the tide times at the beachside cafe before strolling this beautiful coastline on your very own fossil hunt. The next stop will be West Runton. Dr David Waterhouse is Senior Curator of Natural History and Geology and looks after the amazing finds here at the Norfolk Museums. to become a fossil expert? Actually, very little. Anyone can, can go out and collect fossils and look at fossils, especially in, in Norfolk and North Norfolk, where it's so easy. So there's a whole range of different, different ways. You can literally just go to the beach and become a, a fossil expert. What's so special about the coastline at West Runton? 
the, the whole of Norfolk we call the Deep History Coast, full of this deep history, the, the prehistory, if you if you like. But West Runton is really, really special because, well, there was a mammoth discovered there, a whole mammoth, um, not a woolly mammoth, but something called a steppe mammoth, so about twice the size. I often say that they probably should be called the giant forest mammoth, because we now know they lived in this forested area, um, say about twice the size of a, a well, an African elephant. Uh, absolutely huge. It was discovered in West Runton in the 1990s. That's amazing. So a whole mammoth, every, every bone just well, preserved, hanging around there in the rocks. Yeah, about 80% complete. You know, for something that's been in the ground for about 700,000 years, that, you know, that that's near, near complete. There's only a few bits missing. Actually, it's really interesting. The pieces that were missing were all the small bones, such as the toe bones and the tail bones. And that's because we had hyenas in Norfolk about 700,000 years ago, and they nibbled those, those little bones. So 700,000 years ago, when that, that mammoth shuffled off and had his toes chewed by hyenas... This would have been a very different landscape, wouldn't it? How does how does a mammoth and hyenas end up in Norfolk? So technically, this was the Ice Age, but within an Ice Age, you get warm periods and cold periods. So this was a warm period. And so the environment was really, really like the Norfolk Broads today. But obviously without those big white boats and, and sort of people wandering <laughs> around. So if you take the Norfolk Broads and stick some mammoths some rhino, some spotted hyena, and a few giant deer, then you've pretty much got the environment at West Runton 700,000 years ago. So all the scary ones are gone nowadays. Why is that? The larger animals were kind of wiped out during the colder periods of the Ice Age. So lots of them were pushed further south. So things like hyenas, exactly the same species you get in Africa today, spotted hyena. They were pushed down in, into uh, Africa and they never made it back. Because if you think about it, since then, civilization has grown up in the Mediterranean. So they couldn't make it past the, the Greeks and Romans, if you like. Um, and since then... Britain has become an island. It was a peninsula of Europe all that time ago. So even if they made it through to France today, you wouldn't get hyenas back in in Britain. Because they're not so good on ferries. No, not the best. Not the best. Yeah. So David, what's the difference between fossils and actual bone? Mm. Bones actually become fossils over time. So they become mineralised. So all the organic matter, the proteins and things that are normally in bones kind of leach out and then they're replaced by minerals and they literally become turned to stone and that's a full fossil. At West Runton, things like the West Runton mammoth are what's known as semi-fossilised. So they're half and half, they're half bone and they're half fossil. So it means they're, they're a little bit softer but they are kind of preserved, ready for you to find. So tell me a little bit more about the, the deep history coast. Is it a particular type of rock that means that these bones and things are preserved really well there? Well, Deep History Coast is really a concept that kind of covers all, really. So we've got amazing archaeology in Norfolk as well, Bronze Age archaeology at places like near King's Lynn, the, the, the uh, so-called Sea Henge, uh, amazing Roman and Iron Age finds, and it goes right the way back to about 90 million years ago so deep history just really is that it just goes the deeper you go the older you get 
and really as with any rocks or sediments that contain fossils and and archaeology it's luck so it just so happened we've got the right age sediments and and they're not even turned to, to rock where you find mammoths and things they're really soft which is why the sea and weather erodes things out so easily which is one of the reasons why it's a great place to find fossils and then the deeper you go they they, they are rocks um and you get things like sea urchins <gasps> so you've just what have you got there what have you just pulled out of your pocket it's it's like a kind of shiny shiny orb yeah, like so this, egg. this is um, this is a bit of a cheat because this is one that I, I, I um, have at home and this is a polished one. So when you find these fresh, they're not so shiny. But this <laughs> is um, a sea urchin called Echinochorus scutata. Rolls off the tongue. About 99% of the sea urchins in Norfolk are this species. About 90 to 70 million years old. The dinosaurs were on land um, further west, mm-hmm. but the rocks that we have that are of that age dinosaur age um, are the chalk and the flint where you get millions and millions of sea urchins and things like these this is a, a, a little piece of bellumite um bellumite it, yeah. it looks like um one of those wood screws when you're putting flat pack furniture <laughs> together yeah well this is um calcium carbonate and this is essentially you know we get uh, cuttlefish today this is a kind of bullet shaped or screw shaped uh, version from the closely related bellumite. So this would have looked like a squid. That's the back end of the body, and the tentacles would have come out the front, um, and they kind of would have shot backwards like a, like a squid. And these were living in the water in their millions with the dinosaurs on land. So these are really good ones. You find lots at these places like West Runton along the, the North Norfolk coast. Oh, wow, yeah. So what's this? So this is what's called the Haysborough Hand Axe. And the Haysborough Hand Axe was found in 2000, so 20 years ago. This is a, a, a flint tool that's been dated to around half a million years ago. So before that, we weren't sure that there were people here. We now know that there were people living here, so Haysborough just on the North Norfolk coast. But this isn't a modern human like you or me. This isn't Homo sapiens. This mm-hmm. was made by a species, our cousin, if you like, so not our direct ancestor, but a kind of offshoot, a species called Homo heidelbergensis. Norfolk is such an important place for, for, for studying early humans. Haysborough is the oldest archaeological site in northern Europe. West Runton, so important because of the large mammals like the, the West Runton mammoth. Um, and they're on our doorstep step here in Norfolk you know anyone can go and and find them and actually the Haysborough hand axe was found by a dog walker he was walking along the beach um so so you know people walking along the beach are our eyes and ears gosh it must really be about knowing what to look out for then when you're you're wandering along the coast fossil hunting because it's it's quite a big recreational activity now you don't need any tools so you know we literally we don't want people to go there with with picks and shovels and, and things like that and actually it's dangerous to do that because you, you, you'd be digging into cliffs, which, of course, is never a, a good idea. And actually, at some points along the North Norfolk coast, it's illegal because they are sites of special scientific interest because of the geology there. But all this stuff erodes out. It washes out of the cliffs. It washes out of the, the beach and you can just pick them up. So that's the beauty of it. You don't need a thing. You don't need a bucket, a spade. All you need is a keen pair of eyes and you can just pick them up off the beach. 
It's so exciting that this beautiful coastline is throwing up surprises for archaeologists all the time. It makes you wonder what the next discovery will tell us about the history of humans and life in East Anglia. It really is a great journey to do by train too. The line travels along the coast, dipping into Cromer, which is famous for its crab. Crab fishing is a centuries-old trade here, and a guidebook from the start of the 19th century described the crab and fish caught here as in the finest perfection. I think that means they're pretty tasty dinner. Crome is also a favourite spot for lovers of the traditional seaside holiday, with its Victorian pier, sandy beach and annual folk festival. It also teams up with neighbouring Sheringham annually for an art and literary festival. Our final stop on the Bitten Line takes us along the coast to a sheltered little nook in the Cromer Ridge. There are beautiful and perhaps bracing walks to be had along the Clifftop Norfolk Coastal Path and the nearby salt marshes too. But I'm skipping along to Sheringham, where our next guest is waiting. Sheringham, this train will now terminate here. All change, please. As soon as you climb off the train, you realise how this fishing village also doubles as a holiday hotspot for visitors in the area. Immediately opposite the terminus of the Bitten Line is the beginning of the superbly restored North Norfolk Heritage Railway. Sheringham's small high street is busy with shops and boutiques, and down at the water, bright beach huts face out to sea, where fishermen bring in crates of wriggling crab and other catches. Tim Groves is Chair of Directors and one of the founding members of Sheringham Museum. His passion for local history led him to set up the museum after a career in teaching. We took shelter from the rain in the amazing lookout tower at the top. Hello, Tim. It's lovely to meet you. Thank you, and you. We've got a fantastic view across across the North Sea. Yep. Um, and the weather is clearing. The tide is in at the moment. It's looking very turbulent and moody out there. Yes, it is. <laughs> Today, Sheringham, on first impression, it, it strikes you as the typical seaside town. But, of course, there's a lot of heritage around here that goes a lot further back than that. Yes, there is. There's a huge amount of heritage in Sheringham. I think that locals and visitors alike don't realise. One of my hobbies has always been local history. And Peter Brooks, a dear friend of mine, who unfortunately is no longer with us, and I, with the support of Mary Cooper Johnson, as she was then, founded the museum getting on for 32 years ago then we got offered our first lifeboat tell me why you decided to put the lifeboat at the heart of the museum the lifeboats have always been an important part of the heritage of Sheringham since the Augusta was given by by Mrs Upcher in the 1840s so this was a private they were a private lifeboat and it wasn't until later on in the 19th century that the RNLI came and set up in Sheringham. In fact, we're very close to the first RNLI boat shed, which when you came in through the back door was just behind you, which is now called the Oddfellows Hall. Mm-hmm. And we're probably sitting just above where the main slipway would have come down and then go out to sea. The North Sea at the moment is fairly placid. It can be very ferocious and stormy and before the sea defences came, much of the cliff would get washed away and probably the Sheringham we talk about of 500 years ago is a good few hundred yards out into the sea now. The the Upture family were an important family to Sheringham. They were great philanthropists 
and they knew that with the title of Lords of the Manor, they had responsibility for the people in Sheringham, and they didn't shirk that. They started up schools. They were very much part of the the understanding of um, emancipation for for the slave trade. The village was a flock of very much cared for people. And all their lives were hand in hand with the sea. All their lives were hand in hand with the sea and the land. Mm. Mm. A lot of them were farmers. A lot of them went out to sea to fish. Mm-hmm. Um, children followed the occupation of their father. You have generations of of fishermen going. The water looks like it's up to something all the time. Yes, yes, <laughs> it is. Um, it should be turning now. It should be going out. Is that a fisherman? It could, yes, it is. He's coming in on the east end at the moment. But it's one of the fish crab fishermen coming in. Sheringham wouldn't be Sheringham without its fishermen and its fishing heritage. It wouldn't be Sheringham for many people without its lifeboat, albeit now it's a rapid response boat, but a very well-supported one. I was reading something quite interesting that in in Sheringham in particular, generations would have the same names passed down, wouldn't they? They would, yes, like like West and Peg. But they'd have the um, same first names too, right? They would sometimes have the same first name and therefore they would develop nicknames. (laughs) Those nicknames varied greatly. And, I mean, you had Pongo. Pongo. Um, you had Teapot. Um, I can see them now. <laughs> Poor old Teapot. Joyful. Joyful. Joyful That's was quite an interesting name. one. Yeah, the fishing community are very, are very close. Mm-hmm. Um, unfortunately, now you're starting to see a real decline. There's only about three or four boats now fishing off the beaches oh, here, yeah. whereas in the period of the 1870s, 1880s, there were over 100 boats. Really? And with that came also heritage that had developed here and in other parts along the coast of something we're particularly keen of here, and that's the word Gansey. Gansey. Uh, they are very closely knit jumpers, woolen jumpers, that were knitted for the fishermen with um, individual patterns on to recognise the family. Wow, that detail. We are at the museum here um, developing a national network for for Gansies oh, and we are deve- we're developing a national network yeah That's and amazing. the way in which the women of the time the fishermen's wives would spend time knitting for their husbands several times we wanted to find out where a best Gansey of a family had gone because we'd heard so much about it and it's only in recent years that we discovered that the best Gansey when the poor chap died he was buried in so they will no longer be available to us <laughs> What is it that's so special about the place? Well, I love the sea, so I'd say the sea, the smell of mm. a winter of a winter storm. I have to take my glasses off because they get quickly steamed up with spray. <laughs> um, I love the moods, the changing moods of the of, of the seafront here. Also, I think one of the other special things about the place is the local people. That they're known as Shannocks. 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 We have a very well-known, nationally known carnival. So, what happens in Carnival Week then? Carnival Week, all sorts of things. We have parades, 
local local businesses and families build floats to parade around the town with. It's jolly good fun. We had pram races. Pram races? Yeah, through the town with <laughs> hay bales either side of the street going down High Street from the clock tower going down. The crowds have water balloons throwing at people. Flour, although we tried to ban flour over recent years. It could get a bit sticky um, with the water, But we have right? a very, very active, very, very active carnival committee mm. who do all this as volunteers for the benefit of Sheringham. But Sheringham is, for all intents and purposes, a late Victorian seaside development from a small fishing village to an amazing, well-kept seaside resort now. And hopefully at the museum we do our bit to maintain that heritage and educate people about how important it is to remember the past and learn lessons for developing the future. Tim and I ended up talking for quite a lot longer. He and his colleagues at the museum really had so much to share about Sheringham. And the exhibits themselves take you through everything from wartime to wind power. There's a reconstructed old high street, wall art, and of course those amazing lifeboats, which are quite something close up. I can't believe how far we've travelled together in this series. We've crossed four counties and met the most inspiring people. It's amazing how many volunteers and community projects are so passionately keeping alive the heritage and culture of East Anglia, and so happy to share stories and histories with visitors like you and me. Aside from the phenomenal landscapes, beautiful towns and exciting activities on offer, it is this that makes travelling here in East Anglia so special. And I've loved doing it all in comfort on Greater Anglia's new trains. It really does make a difference to have free Wi-Fi and a clean, warm carriage at the end of a busy day exploring. A huge thank you to everyone who's given their time to meet us on our journey. From the Community Rail Partnership volunteers, to the guides, curators, villagers and business owners, it really is them who come together to make East Anglia a Greater Anglia. Hopefully you've been as inspired as I have to spend time here again when you can. If so, why not share this podcast with a friend so that they can go on an audible journey too. You can find out more about Greater Anglia Journeys on the website greateranglia.co.uk and take a look at bitternline.com to find out more about journeys in the area. Here's to many more adventures to come.